It's the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. David Charles Gore says the Book of Mormon has important things to say about how we say important things. It's not enough to be in possession of the truth. You also have to know how to share it in ways that actually reach other people's hearts. Gore is a professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Minnesota at Duluth, and he spent decades researching rhetoric, which is the art of discussion and persuasion. And he brought that training to bear on a scriptural text he loves, the Book of Mormon. He wrote about it in his new book, The Voice of the People, Political Rhetoric in the Book of Mormon. The book was published here by the Maxwell Institute. Are there false ways to share true things? How can we make our words count in a world of strife and competing opinions? David Charles Gore says the Book of Mormon provides some striking answers to these questions. And if you have any questions or comments about this and other episodes of the Maxwell Institute podcast, you can send them to me at mipodcast at byu.edu. David Gore, thanks for coming to the Maxwell Institute today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Blair. We just published your book, The Voice of the People. Uh, Congratulations on getting the book finished. Thank you. I'm excited. How did you hear about the series that it's published in? It's a three-part series that Adam Miller and Joe Spencer did. I heard about that series by talking to Adam and Joe years ago, even before I think the series started with Maxwell, back when it was at a salt press or something, and uh, I shared with them the idea I had for this book, and they were interested, and we started talking over a long period of time, and things moved around for them, and then got snuck in here. Yeah, the series is called Groundwork, and what they wanted to do is have scholars bring their field of expertise to bear on the Book of Mormon. And so Joe Spencer did that with some of his work. Uh, they had a book by Jod Hatem, who is a philosopher who looked at the three Nephites. And then you come from a different background. Talk a little bit about what you brought to the Book of Mormon. Yeah, so I, I was really interested in using the theory of rhetoric to read the Book of Mormon. I've been curious about whether or not the Book of Mormon has a kind of implicit rhetorical theory in it. I've also sort of asked that question about other Restoration scriptures. Is there, a, is there a way that we can discover in these texts something that teaches us about how to persuade each other? Because I think about persuasion as one of the key ways we relate to each other. And clearly, it seems to me that these texts are about relationships as much as anything. So, Yeah, and, and your book's making a simple claim. You, you say that the Book of Mormon makes a real and serious contribution to our understanding of the human predicament. What's the human predicament? <laughs> well, the human predicament is, you know, the life of mortals, right? It's about dying, and it's about trying to make meaning while we live before we die. So that our lives are meaningful and purposeful in the here and now. And so uh, also we can make some kind of lasting contribution that perhaps might even extend beyond our life to the other people around us. I like one of the ways you describe it in the book as humans working together to try to build a shared reality. What are some problems and opportunities that people face in that effort? Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, building a shared reality for me means that we're moving in the same direction, that we're looking for common ground with each other instead of uh, simply trying to build a world for ourselves, right? Which is part of the, one of the predicaments of mortality is that we want to build a reality that's good for us. And we want to build it for ourselves exclusively. And oftentimes that means we forget other people or we leave them out. And when we're thinking about the kind of world we want to live in or the kind of way we want to shape the world that we do live in. And I think that's obviously highly problematic. That tendency to want to either go it alone or to build a shared reality that really isn't in its essence shared, right? But it's a reality that belongs to a few people exclusively and also tends to exclude others. And I think that's one of the problems that we face in that quest what Wayne Booth says, the sort of the quest for effective communication, the quest for finding common ground that we can share together. And so I think there's, a, again, that tendency to either think about the ground as uncommon, 
That is to say, not shareable or not no reason to share it, but also really to sort of neglect that connection or obligation that we have to each other. You call your book a work of rhetorical theology. That was an interesting phrase. Is that unique to you? Talk about that. I don't know if it's unique to me, but I, I think I was I was really interested in the work of Jim Falconer and Joe Spencer in, in scriptural theology and sort of this idea of connecting what you're doing uh, to the text, I suppose. And so for me, thinking about the ways we can draw out sort of a rhetorical understanding of the world from the scriptural text was kind of my goal there. And so I'm not a theologian by training. I don't have any background in theology per se. But uh, I am interested in, in that question about how rhetoric as an art of public life can relate to theology, which, which in essence used to be an art of public life and isn't necessarily an art of public life today in the secular world that we live in. I think it's been, you could say, marginalized from public life in some important ways in the modern world. But at the same time, I think, it, I think it's also on the ascendant in some ways. I actually think theology there's going to be a swing back in the next 500 years, if you will, of, of theology and theological thinking as a way of relating to and understanding the world. So 500 years, that's a, we'll, we'll <laughs> you know, stay tuned. We'll see if you, if right. that turns out to be right. So the study of rhetoric itself, you, this is your field of expertise. When a lot of people hear rhetoric, they just think of like, you know, rhetoric can even have a negative connotation to it, like empty words or Absolutely. something like that. So yeah. tell people a little bit about what rhetoric is. Well, rhetoric is a slippery term, to be sure, and that's partly because uh, it comes out of ancient Athens in which Plato tries to give rhetoric a bad rap, and his goal in doing that is to show that there are people who are interested in primarily using words in a superficial way. This is how he nibbly yeah, was talked about right, for people absolutely. who are familiar with that Latter-day Saint yeah, thinker, like, I think he didn't like rhetoric. Yeah. He didn't, and uh, I've sort of... Uh, engaged a little bit with, with his position on rhetoric because I think that it could be broadened. And in the sense that even for Plato, there was a sense that there was a kind of rhetoric that probably exists somewhere that was good for the soul, that could point you to justice, and that could help you answer for your own crimes, so to speak, or answer for your own sins. And that's not an easy rhetoric for us to summon. Again, I don't think it's what comes naturally. I think what comes naturally is often a desire to make ourselves look good, and again, also, as I say, to build up worlds for ourselves that aren't necessarily connected to the needs of the people around us. And that's a real challenge when it comes to rhetoric. And so, as I say, this slippery term that has this really long history, uh, and it's a contested history. And if you hear the word rhetoric used in newspapers, on television, it's almost always used in a kind of derogatory mm -hmm. way to describe speech that's just empty mm -hmm. or it's self-interested, right? And I think, that there, I, I think that there is a lot of speech like that. But I also believe in what, what James Boyd White calls living speech. And he calls what he means by that is, is speech that moves us towards justice and love in its essence, right? And, it, and it's speech that we really believe in when we say it. We really, we're really saying something we believe in. That's living speech. And I think that's the kind of speech we want to try to aim at. And it's not the kind of speech, again, that's, that we're surrounded by all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's not a kind of speech that comes naturally to us. So what we're surrounded by is things like advertising, propaganda, cliches, trivialization in, in discourse and language. That kind of speech is actually quite destructive. And it also supports what James Boyd White calls this, this notion of a, the empire of force. It's speech that's designed to dehumanize people and to to treat them like uh, like objects instead of subjects kind of yeah yeah to treat them like objects instead of subjects and so that kind of speech is speech that we need to learn how to speak against 
And we need to learn how to summon the resources of a speech that's alive with conviction and that can actually express genuine love and that actually pursues real justice in the world. So what do you analyze then as the rhetoric? Do you sit down and look at the words that are being used or the structure of arguments? What what does a professor of rhetoric do to analyze speech? So in its basis, right, in its essence, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a teacher of public speaking. So I'm interested in people who stand up in front of audiences and make speeches. But I'm also interested in any kind of rhetorical artifact that comes from that kind of discourse. So in Mosiah chapter 29, you have a letter written by a king to his people. And the letter is about uh, teaching them about government and about politics, in essence. In, in essence. In, in Alma chapter 2, you have this, or Alma chapter 1, you have Nehor, who's making a speech to defend himself after he murders Gideon. These kinds of discourses all fit under the title of rhetoric. And so what we're really looking at is artifacts that are intended to persuade. And we're trying to see what kinds of arguments were used in those, in those artifacts. Like, was it logic? Was it emotion? Was it, sure. uh, you know. How did it tie all those things together, okay. right? Because yeah. rhetoric is, is really interested not just in, in, in logic by itself or emotion by itself, but how both of those things are brought together into, into human beings all at once, right? That's we're both emotional and logical at the same time. Yeah, I don't believe in the separation, yeah. actually. Yeah. If you, if you I don't, don't either. Keep... Yeah, I very much don't. And I think <laughs> rhetoric is an art for making sure we don't separate those things. We we look at the whole person as, a, as, as historically constituted, that, that we live in history, that we're living at particular times and in particular places, and we have particular allegiances because of that. So that's very subjective in one sense. But it's also, it's also about our emotional and rational powers, reasonableness. So the tools that you're bringing to the Book of Mormon, they can be used on any, any sort of argument. They can be used on any kind of text. Would you characterize this kind of approach to the Book of Mormon as being secular in a way? Or are you bracketing ideas about ultimate truth and God and faith? How does that work? That's a great question. So I, I actually, when I when I saw Elder Holland's talk at the Maxwell Institute this summer, I, I went back and looked at my text to make sure I didn't use the word bracket, and I was very glad to see that I didn't because yeah. I share uh, his conviction that we shouldn't really bracket our faith in one sense. At the same time, though, I was really interested in asking a question about what does the Book of Mormon tell us about politics? And I think in the modern world, we're led to believe that politics is secular, and so in a way, I was kind of interested in asking this question is, can there be like secular consequences to sacred rhetoric, hmm. but not in the sense of wanting to bracket religious faith, but on the, on the contrary, to show that religious faith can in fact inform our practical circumstances mm-hmm. and our practical situations and that, what, that predicament that we're all stuck in. And religious claims in many cases are speech acts themselves. They and absolutely so, yeah. are. They absolutely are. And they're constituting that desire to persuade other people. And people are often persuaded by them at the same time. And so right. that's, it's important to think of them in that way. So it's funny that you've done a book that's kind of talking about religion and politics. It's extremely cliche to point out that those are the things people say you shouldn't bring up in polite conversation. But there's this line from your introduction that really caught my eye. You said, one of the greatest honors we can give other people is to argue with them. That's uncommon to hear someone praise arguing. Yeah. So, and what I mean by that, of course, is is making arguments, not having an argument. So the distinction here is is appealing to people's rational and emotional energy, and using that to help them understand one another, and again develop that common ground. And so I, I think when we're when we're prepared to argue with another person, it's all it also is a sign that we're prepared to listen to them. Yeah. And in our desire to listen to them, we're showing a genuine respect for who they are at their core, in their essence. And we're also showing a desire to to appeal to who that who they are, right? And to make that kind of living speech that can actually go go to their heart 
and affect them in their, not just in their mind, but also in their heart and make them think about and see the world in a new way. That is a crucial point because right now you'll see some people online or elsewhere sort of praise the idea of free speech and of saying it like it is and, um, you know, there shouldn't be safe spaces and, the, and these type of sort of culture war things. You would say that the whole context needs to be paid attention to. So if you're arguing with someone, you should pay attention to power dynamics, for absolutely. example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's right. I think, I think a lot of the speech that that circulates today is is crafted to keep thought at bay, <laughs> and and to to not interrogate, you know, the way that we are in fact connected to the words that we speak, and the way that we are in fact our character is caught up in the things that we say, not just the things we do. And and I think that desire sometimes to want to distance ourselves from both the consequences of what we say, the, their effects in the world, but also from a kind of sense of ownership over them, right? That that we, Plato talks about, do we, do we treat these, our words as legitimate children or illegitimate children, right? Hmm. And, and how do we how do we take responsibility for what we say? Hmm. I think there's a big tendency in today's world to to want to shift that responsibility, to blame other people for what we say, even or to say things that, as you say, dehumanize people, make them less than, uh, call into question their value because of whatever distinction might be the you know the the soup of the day. Hmm. But that's something that I think is really problematic. It shows a disrespect for human beings. And so I, so I think that's, and that's again, goes back to what I mean about arguing with people as a sign of respect, because if you're really engaging people, then you're not insulting them and you're not being superficial and you're not just talking about things in a glib way or in a way that makes yourself look good. You're actually trying to engage with them in that creation of a social world together. Yeah, togetherness. There's a great little phrase you have in there and it works better in writing than audibly, but insight rather than insight. You're seeking insight in a conversation rather than to incite someone. Yeah, to, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think the tendency sometimes is is to use speech to light a fire under other people and to really get them, get their goat, I guess, so to speak, or make them feel bad about themselves. And, and I think really we should be trying to understand each other in its <laughs> essence. Yeah. So you're bringing your academic training to bear on the Book of Mormon in particular. And you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You look to the Book of Mormon as inspired scripture, but you're also bringing your academic tools to bear on it. Talk a little bit more about what it's like for you as a believer to bring scholarship into conversation with scripture. Were there any tensions there? Were there fresh insights, benefits, drawbacks? There were a lot of tensions there. So for me, as a Latter-day Saint who never attended BYU, I've never been in an, in an educational environment that was informed wholly by my religious belief. I didn't come here as a student. I've never taught here. Uh, so that and I and I teach at a state school at the University of Minnesota Duluth, which is is a secular institution uh, to its core, and so trying to juggle that act has been interesting professionally, uh, and at the same time, I th I think even even perhaps more intensely when I was writing the book, there were moments when I would feel a deep sense of anguish about what I was saying and a deep sense of concern about the consequences of what I was saying because I didn't want anything I wrote to be uh, used by, by the kinds of people that are sometimes referred to as fundamentalists. I didn't want to be saying something that would connect religion and politics in a way that would support the empire force, that would support people, uh, you know, drawing distinctions between different kinds of people or or allowing political conflict to sort of flourish or to be to feed political conflict i wanted it to be 
about about justice and love in its essence and and about speech that could create that kind of that kind of uh, discourse in the world and would be used in that way. And I thought about that a lot. Like, how are these words going to be used? How could they be used in the future in 50 years or 100 years if, if there were a dominant political party that was somehow uh, religious as well at the same time? I don't know. Uh, I, those were thoughts that sort of ran through my mind is what are the consequences of this? And how do you, and, and that tore me up inside. I mean, I, there was a lot of fear and trembling, as I, I would say, that, that I, I that worried me as I wrote this because I didn't I didn't want to be uh, feeding any kind of narrative that would be dehumanizing or trivializing to the experience of certain kinds of people. Did you find resolution to that angst? Not necessarily. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think readers will have to decide if that happened, but but I think that uh, I certainly felt uh, often as I was writing it that there that there are ways to express ourselves that that can be meaningful and that can be uh, distinctive in the sense that uh, saying something that's important, that matters, but that also uh, leaves enough room in the discourse for not just clarity, but also, I guess, uh, moving us towards goodness, I hope. I noticed that you tend to avoid the terms liberal and conservative, too. Was that Talk about that choice. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, so... Uh, the word liberal does appear one time in the Book of Mormon. The word conservative does not appear there. But I, <laughs> but I tried to avoid both terms in the sense that uh, I, I think what's happening, what I think the Book of Mormon teaches us about persuasion is bigger than those distinctions. And I wanted to keep it at a, at a level that was larger than, than those kinds of disagreements. I really wasn't interested in proof texting the Book of Mormon <laughs> or trying to make arguments about my own political beliefs which I honestly, I'm not even sure what my own political beliefs are. They're certainly not liberal or conservative. They can't be labeled in that way. And I, and I was definitely not interested in allowing them to be labeled in that way. And so I was trying to write, not just in a, in a more sort of idealist, not in an idealistic way yeah. as to try to divide, you know, separate myself from the right. concerns of the real world, but simply to show that that kind of conflict between right and left is ultimately, as I believe it is, the wrong conflict for the future. Yeah. Right? And who I mean, knows how long it will be. Yeah. And, yeah. and it really comes out of the French Revolution, and it's something that I think is probably not serving us very well anymore. And so I, I, I was hoping that I could aim at something. But at the same time, I think that. what you're saying can apply to the situation, though, as well, because you're making arguments about how if you if people want to claim being a liberal or conservative how they might better go about talking about being a liberal or being a I conservative. very much hope so I very much hope so because I think yeah I think if we draw if we focus on the principles of rhetoric that might be embedded in the story of the Book of Mormon we might discover that you're absolutely right that we could, we could be better at whatever kind of politics we believe in if we practiced it the way that this this work suggests we might which is to say if we could practice it uh, with a with a little bit more of a mournful tone and with an eye towards uh, accepting our own faults and our own shortcomings and the, and the faults and shortcomings of our own position or our side, so to speak, right? It isn't just about individual faults, but about the, the failure of, of parties and the failure of human organizations to, to really succeed at establishing justice and love in the world. Uh, and, and so it's, yeah, I think that kind of approach that would, that would help us to see this in broader terms. So yeah, I absolutely hope it's relevant to people that want to practice whatever politics they want to practice. But that's why I kept it on the focus on principles, I think, and, or tried to, right? <laughs> 
That's right. You mentioned mournfulness. That's a heavy theme in the book, and we'll return to that. We're talking with David Gore. He's associate professor and department head in the Department of Communication at the University of Minnesota, Duluth. And we're talking about his new book, The Voice of the People, Political Rhetoric in the Book of Mormon. So how, as you've done this project, how have you seen the Book of Mormon comparing to other world literature that you've looked at? So you've talked about Plato and other literature that you use in classes and have students evaluate. How does the Book of Mormon compare as a work of writing? Well, that's a great question. I, I have never taught the Book of Mormon in class, so I've never compared it in that way uh, to how it would resonate with students. But for me, it, it compares favorably, obviously. It's a, it's a work that has captured my imagination and that I continually find myself returning to again and again and again. I compare it in the introduction to the Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, which I think is another work that is really designed to promote or foster ethical thinking and also ethical speech. And I think that the Book of Mormon is a lot more scattered. I mean, the thing that's so interesting about the Book of Mormon, I don't know that I've ever encountered any text that has as many layers and as many complexities as the Book of Mormon has. There, there are flashbacks and there are references to stories from before and after, and you never really know where you are or when you are when you're reading the Book of Mormon. It's a, so I've heard someone say it's like a nesting doll. Like uh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And 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 that's. It, that's right. And and I think that the complexity of that text is, I think, uh, finally starting to be realized by uh, both literature scholars and philosophers, humanists of all kinds who are finally, I think, coming to terms with actually engaging in the text itself, which is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. And that uh, I think often you can get things wrong. You know, that one of the things that's really helpful now are the sort of... Uh, wikis that are out there that can help you try to keep the names and the places straight because it's it's a mess <laughs> yeah yeah i'll put a pitch in for the maxwell institute study edition that's one yeah, of the things absolutely. grant hardy tried to do is like help people know where they're at and when they're at and who they're with yeah and uh, speaking of grant hardy that his text the book of mormon is the one that i use throughout this book because i i find it uh such a helpful way to read the text the the, the work that he's done there is invaluable in terms of squaring the text up and allowing you to read it and understand and follow who's speaking and who's saying what or what part of the text, what kind of text you're dealing with, that sort of thing is just amazing. Yeah. So go pick up a copy of the Maxwell Institute <laughs> study edition of the Book of Mormon. Thank you. Um, all right. So your book is a nice 200 pages. That's that's nice and tight, but people might be surprised that you only cover three chapters of the Book of Mormon in that space. Yeah. Talk about that. Right. Yeah. Well, and actually probably three chapters was ambitious, honestly. I think that, as I say, the text is so complicated, so complex, it has so many layers that, that it would be difficult to deal with larger chunks than that. The reason why I came at this portion of the text in particular is And I should say this is Mosiah 29 and Alma chapter 1 and 2. So yeah, that's, that's exactly the, yeah. right, which is, the, which is the story of Mosiah ending the monarchy, establishing the reign of the judges, which then quickly uh, devolves into civil war and ends uh, the last verse, I think, of chapter 2 is a, a heap of bones piled up dead bodies from the civil war, right? So it goes from bad to – it goes – well, it goes from good – Mosiah has these really good intentions for the government. He has really purposeful aims and objectives. He, and and, and, and he then it goes to really bad and then really worse, you know, yeah. very fast. In five years, you yeah. know, these people have torn each other apart. And that, it's that, that kind of apocalyptic almost uh, element of the story drew me in. But I also was, was really caught by that phrase, the voice of the people. That's what 20 years ago when I first started thinking about writing this book, 
that phrase, the voice of the people, was something that I was really fascinated by. And it, 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 it occurs many places in the Book of Mormon, but I think probably nowhere more intensely as in Mosiah 29, Alma 1 and 2. And so I was really interested in, in sort of that phrase, but also understanding the larger concept, that, like you said, the context in which voices speak and the, 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 the broadness of that context. And, and that's what's fascinating about these chapters because there's so much happening in terms of Mosiah referencing other texts, I think, and drawing upon certainly the Book of Ether because he just translated that mm-hmm. before he made the change in government, but also, uh, you know, a lot of other texts are sort of circling around this, these, these three chapters. And so I really wanted to explore that. And uh, I didn't think that I could go any farther than that, honestly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it filled the book, so yeah. yeah. And you say when you started the project, you assumed that government regime types were a crucial part of good governance. In other words, the right kind of system would lead to the right kind of good life for people, that the text would make it clear whether it's better to have a king or to have a system of judges or to have something else. But then you surprised yourself in the course of research. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think we, the probably most popular reading of what Mosiah is doing here is he's establishing a a democracy or a Republican government like we have in the United States. And I don't, I don't think that's what he's doing at all. And I think uh, the the quicker we dismiss that reading, the faster we'll get to understanding what he's up to. What are the most obvious points that that you would point to that suggest that's the case? Well, some people say, what What are you talking about? So Bushman mentions like the reign of the judges, right? Richard Bushman talks about the, the, even the phrase, the reign of the judges. And then also the fact that these judgeships tend to be hereditary as well, it appears. We don't, not always, but certainly does happen. And so, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of suggestions that this, the voice of the people is not about voting either. I mean, it's not anything like what we think of as democracy in that sense. But, and, but I think at the same time, like you said, with regime, with reference to regime ties, what I think is interesting about this text and what, what I came to understand and what I wrestled with, honestly, while I was writing this, Blair, is the question about uh, kingship, because Mosiah 29 says two things. It says, one, if you can have a just, righteous king to be your king, then you should want that. It's better than any other form of yeah. government. And then it also says, but you, since you can't always have that, you better not have it. Yeah. And that's kind of a weird situation <laughs> to be in. But for Christians, right, the idea is that Christ is the king and that he will come back and reign. And so that that was hard to wrestle with, too, as I thought about the consequences of what I would write in my interpretation of what's happening. You have to really think about, well, how does does this prepare us to be monarchists after all or is it how, how how's what's that relationship there but i think at the end of the day like yeah the realization came to me that the the type of government that you have is is not always the most crucial factor in determining the type of person that you can be or the type of community you can have i think that i'm a believer in democracy in the modern world but i also am intrigued by by its shortcomings yeah. You know. And you point out there's a quote from you where you say dispositions in the people have a far greater effect in the Book of Mormon than the regime type. Yeah, so I think th- and I think this is a really good example. I mean, I think there must have been some kind of social pressure operating on Mosiah. I don't know, you know, he has a lot of reasons for ending the monarchy. One is that his sons don't want it. They don't appear to want it. 
and two, that I think there was also some other pressure on him to sort of move in the direction of moving away from monarchy. And so how does he do that? And what's the best way to do that, I think, is is complicated. I'm not sure I answered your question. It was basically, yeah, this idea that dispositions in the people have yeah. a greater effect than a particular regime type. And you, you laid out kind of Mosiah's concerns. Yeah, Mosiah has these concerns. But at the end of the day, what he's trying to do is instruct the people to accept a new type of government that requires them to accept the burden of governing. He tells them that, look, being a king is really a pain. It's really hard. You have to do all these things for your people all the time, and then they complain. <laughs> and so he's really quite serious about Heavy it. Heavy is the I, head that wears yes, the crown. that's right. And in that essence is, is this attempt to try to say, hey, you know, everyone needs to share in carrying the burdens of the public. And you can only do that if you're ready to answer for yourself, accept your own shortcomings and your own failures, and then also work to repair the world and the consequences of those failures in the world, right? So those are the dispositions. That, yeah, that the dispositions. Is, the disposition really is that, uh, you know, I think that willingness to shoulder the burden of the public and a willingness to accept that you, you've contributed to part of the problems in the world and you can do something about those problems if you'll take action. The Book of Mormon seems preoccupied with hearts. You talk about this in the book, that the heart is returned to time and again. How does rhetorical theory deal with that element? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I don't, I don't know that it does. Certainly, there have been rhetorical theorists like Augustine and other thinkers over time who have thought a lot about the role of the heart in what we're saying. I think what's interesting about the Book of Mormon is that it tries to help us imagine the consequences of what we're saying not just for other people, but also for for the the speaker, right? And so, what is what is our responsibility? How can our words corrupt ourselves, even, and not just corrupt other people? And I think it's easy for us, also, but our, our words can also corrupt other people if they enter into the hearts of other people in a way that diminishes them or causes them to diminish or dehumanize others. Then I think ultimately, we're, there's a corruption that can enter into the heart that is. That, it, that can spread throughout society in really problematic ways. So that seems like an interesting thing that the Book of Mormon can bring to the study of rhetoric is this talking about disposition as an element of analysis that rhetoric, like rhetorical analysis could look at that. Absolutely, absolutely. I think there is a, a lot to, to think about that could be drawn out of the Book of Mormon. I've tried to show that, that one of those elements is, is that relationship that our speech has to the quality of our, our character. And that's always been a preoccupation for rhetorical theory, to be sure. But I think the Book of Mormon takes an interesting approach because it it does use that metaphor of the heart as the the locus or the center of not just our emotional life, but our life, our, our understanding in life. And if that becomes corrupted, or if our particularly if our compassion, our ability to show compassion to other people, and to show a willingness to meet them where they are, becomes corrupt then I think we're, we're in a really bad place as a society. Any society would be in a bad place if, if people became so caught up in their own interest and their own well-being that they would disregard the rights and the well-being of others. And I think that there's troubling signs that we're moving in that direction from time to time, whether, you know, obviously those troubling signs have always existed because humans have always struggled with that reality. But I think that there's a kind of meanness in public life that worries me. And I think that it's related to this notion of, of our speech. How, how is our speech related to our heart? I think that's yeah. an interesting question. And I think 
the kind of meanness we see in public life extends from that. I realized as I'm reading the book that the title itself kind of has a double meaning, and I assume you intended this, but the voice of the people, we might think of voting or of sort of having a say in government, but it also, the voice of the people indicates the ways that we talk to each other in general. Precisely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah, and in fact, that, that meaning is far more important to me than the first one. <laughs> so I'm less interested in the ways that our, that our voices can have political consequences in the sense of politics being about securing power in a, in a particular moment and instead think about our words as a how do they contribute to the way of life that exists in our cities. One thing that I didn't see you get into is the notion of we hear calls for civility in dialogue and I, I think those are important. I've also seen responses to that where calls for civility have sometimes been used to tamp down oppressed people. So let's say um, people in, a, in really dire straits are angry and make that visible and manifest. And instead of paying attention to the problem, we say, oh, they used mean words or they, they're yelling. So, you know, yeah, you should I mean, be civil. Civili yeah, civility is a double-edged sword for sure. And when we sometimes it's used by those in power to, to quash speech that might challenge their power, right? And by calling someone uncivil, or by calling someone obscene sometimes, we're, we're allowed to deflect from the fact that some situations are obscene, right? I think uh, mm. a lot of rhetoricians have used that to good, good effect. Like Henry Louis Gates Jr. in his book, The Signifying Monkey, he, he basically says, you know, a lot of obscene speech in African-American discourses is about calling attention to the obscenity of racism mm. and the obscenity of slavery. And when you just dismiss that rhetoric on the basis of it not measuring up to some standard of civility, you're actually saying that, the, that civility is accepting the obscenity of, of racism mm -hmm. and slavery. And so the question is, how do we, yeah, how do we move beyond that to speech that, that can nevertheless still live in the sense that we can mean what we're saying and that, we, that it can have a, not just a positive effect on the world, but, but an effect on the world that helps us face the negativity and the underbelly of social life and of public life. Mosiah wants to remove anger from politics. He's unquestionably motivated to avoid anger and contention in politics. Ironically, anger in, pol in politics is exactly what happens mm -hmm. with Nehor and Amlesai in, in Alma 1 and 2, like yeah. almost, almost immediately, right? At the same time, though, that desire to want to push us beyond anger and to be motivated by, by a desire that contention is problematic, I think shows, I think, a certain kind of approach to civility that's important, right? And that really has to do with how we treat other people. It's not so much about, you know, saying outrageous things or trying to dismiss people who say outrageous things because they're outrageous, it's really about trying to respond to that hmm. outrage and to see if there isn't something in the outrage that really needs to be dealt with, that really needs to be, be focused on and addressed. Because often there is, right? But, but we don't want to see that because we want to, we want to just sugarcoat it so it that we require, don't have to It might deal require with you to change something. It for sure yeah. will. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. We can't cover every chapter in depth, but I wanted to zoom in a little bit more on your discussion of Mosiah 29 here. We've talked about it a little bit already. It's a succession crisis of sorts. Mosiah is the king. He's trying to figure out a way to change the government. He, he's kind of looking into the future and seeing that there might be some problems. So he's trying to change the situation ahead of time, abolish the monarchy, but not relinquish all power. That's really <laughs> tricky. You say that the speech that he gives 
in chapter 29 is called didactic rhetoric. So this is like a technical term that your field brings. I want to give people a sense of some of the technical analysis that you bring. So talk about didactic rhetoric. Well, as I say, so didactic rhetoric is speech that's intended to teach his people. And what he wants to teach his people is a, is a new form of government. I say that Mosiah appears to be a monarch who's lost his faith in monarchy. But interestingly enough, he what's also really important is that he doesn't abdicate the throne. Mm-hmm. He doesn't give up his own responsibility to govern that that he's already accepted. But he also wants to create space for his people to measure up, so to speak, to the demand that public life places on them, the demand to be connected with other people and to to share things in common with them and to see how our lives can influence other lives and to be influenced in their turn. And I, I think he, so he needs to teach them how to do that and he's frustrated because they don't immediately know how to do it. And I think that his, he, they don't immediately know how to solve their problems or how to accept the responsibility of governing. So he's got he's to work to teach that. He's got to work to foster <laughs> that in them, yeah. What Mosiah is doing is a lot more complicated than, it's not just some simple morality play or some like basic plot. This is kind of intriguing what he's trying to do. It's complicated. Absolutely, absolutely. And and he knows it's complicated and, and he realizes that there's not going to be a simple solution to the, the challenges that are existing in this in this society. One of those challenges being inequality. You kind of talk about that. One of those challenges is inequality and the other, I think, major challenge is that you have this influx of people. You've got the church, the people of Alma, and you've got the people of Limhi that have all kind of come from different places at different times. And, and then you have the people who are already there in Zarahemla. And so it's really a quite a complex layered civilization or society and so they have to grapple and wrestle with a lot of a lot of inequality in their relationships with each other and a lot of inequality in their understanding of of what the role of public life is clearly there's a huge group of people in this society that want a monarch and who don't want to shift to this reign of judges and who do everything in their power to reestablish a monarchy first by by legitimate means within the system and then by just tearing the whole system apart. And so that 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 force to maintain a monarchy is clearly really strong in this society. And so what do you think was behind that because we get the story from the perspective of people who are rooting for Mosiah. So they're going to put his best foot forward. Yeah, for then sure. we get to see Nehor and these others, but we're seeing them through the lens of the people who are rooting for Mosiah. So what, what was behind it? Why did they want a king so bad? Well, the simplest answer, I think, is that they wanted to maintain the, the inequality that existed, or they wanted that inequality to work in their favor. Mm-hmm. That's probably the simplest answer. I think it might be too simple, because I suspect that there, there might have been other forces at work, although that would probably be my answer. I mean, I think that that sense of wanting to exploit the inequality to their own advantage is, uh, I think, a strong force. As you're talking about this story, you also apply it to today. So readers today, it's not just a history lesson. You're not just bringing us through a history lesson. Here's a quote that I wrote down that I really liked. You ask, how can we foster anxiety for equal chances? How would our communities be stronger if this anxiety was a greater part of the practice of politics, an anxious politics? I think that concern for giving people an equal chance is a really problematic thing, and it's something that we don't do enough of in in our own society. In fact, particularly in the United States now, the social mobility, for example, from one class to another is at a low point, one of the lowest points I think it's ever been at. So I'm interested in what does Mosiah mean by that equal chance, that every person should have an equal chance. And I don't I don't know what it means, but I think it's... Yeah, he doesn't lay it out. He doesn't really specify, and we don't, we don't really know for sure, but clearly he's driven by this desire to promote and foster equality in relationships 
relationships and to foster justice in that equality <laughs> or through it. Right. And, and we get to see the new system tested right away. It gets it set up in an Alma chapter one. What happens next? Yeah. So, well, a couple of things happen. One is this individual Nihor establishes a, a church of his own, which I, which I call a cult of personality in which he tries to uh, create a a discourse around himself that benefits him and that puts him in a really good light, makes him popular. What kind of rhetoric is he using? <laughs> That's a good question. It's, it, I, I would say it's a rhetoric of self-indulgence, right? He's, he, he, wants to, he wants to make life easy for himself. He doesn't want to have to do any work. And of course, this is the side we're getting from those who oppose him. But I think that uh, th- th- this is probably accurate, that there are certainly speakers out there who are self-interested. They only want what they want for themselves, and they're going to say things that will get that for themselves without without really having to uh, face any consequences for it. And so I think, I think that he wants to establish this organization to serve his interest and to make him look good and to make him popular, and he pursues that to the best of his ability. Uh, and I think in doing that, though, he also ends up allowing his anger to get the best of him. So in a way, he's really the perfect example of what Mosiah wanted to, to curb, which was this self-indulgence that could lead to murderous anger. So one thing the book points out is rhetoric can, is kind of a neutral tool. It's, it's something that can be used. It's a hammer. It can be used to hit someone or it can be used to build a doghouse or something. Yeah, I have some problems with that. I think that there, Go, there is yeah. a sense in which uh, a lot of rhetoricians today talk about rhetoric as a tool, but you, know, you can't flip an egg with a hammer. So there, there are different kinds of tools that we have in the world. And so what kind of tool is rhetoric? Rhetoric is a tool for public life. It's a tool for helping us understand each other and to secure agreement with other people. It's a tool for relating to other people, I think, in really crucial ways. But it can also be a tool for manipulating and for propaganda. And I think, and that's where, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, in that sense, it has characteristics of a tool in that it often appears neutral. But as we know from any tool, tools are not neutral in the sense that they actually have profound powers that are in, sort of embedded in their nature, so to speak. And so that's the question that I'm also kind of asking about rhetoric or that I always asked about rhetoric. I don't know that I've answered it, but I've always asked this question about, about the power of persuasion and how it, can, how it is that we can influence people for good or, or evil and also how speech itself is designed to sort of bring us along and bring us together, but it can also be, you know, at the same time, very divisive. Are there ways that people try to achieve bringing people to the good and establishing good with bad rhetoric, bad methods? Well, sure, undoubtedly, for sure, yeah. I mean, I think that's part of the problem with any kind of discussion of social influence is that there is, you know, you know, motivation is such a big part of it. You know, in the 20th century, certainly one of the big thinkers in rhetoric is Kenneth Burke, and he's really interested in motives. And he's interested in trying to understand human motives in all their complexity because he knows that we're not just we're not just motivated by one thing at any given time, and we have to be on guard then against the ways that our motivations can manipulate us. Hmm. It just as much like we can we can think, oh, I'm doing good here, so I must I must speak these words because I'm such I'm a do-gooder. But we know we all know the the negative impact of do-gooders, right? Sometimes yeah. that they're they're not always actually doing the good they think they're doing, and so that ability to question 
your own motives is important. And then a desire not to manipulate the motives of other people. But that's, again, that's not an easy thing to do. And the intrigue isn't through either. So you talked about Nihor, but, you know, after he's gone, the people are then headed for a civil war. And you cover that on the next chapter uh, on Alma 2. What's kind of the synopsis of that one? Yeah, so before that, before that, we get to the Amosai, we sort of have this, what are referred to as the troubles in Grant Hardy's edition of the, the, the people. And these troubles have to do with uh, a greater sort of contention, a greater level of antagonism, even to the level of fistfights and conflict breaking out that's physical. And rhetoric is typically supposed to be a right speech. It's not about about forcing people or using the threat of force to get people to do what you want. You're actually trying to appeal to them doing it for their own sake. And so rhetoric is often seen as a kind of anti-force, right? Or a force that opposes physical force. And so in that respect, right, there's something emerging in that society that they're just becoming more comfortable with physical violence of one kind or another. And I think Again, you can see parallels of that in, in a lot of different cultures, a lot of different places that when we stop checking ourselves, then we can allow that conflict to start to flow in ever bigger sort of currents in, in society. And ultimately, that, that leads to the, to the Civil War in Alma II. And that, again, revolves around a person, Amlesai, who's very much like Nehor. I think he's a Nehorite to his core, and he wants to make himself king. And it says here that he's a, he's a very cunning person. He's a wise person when it comes to the wisdom of the world. And so he's probably a sophisticated person in that sense. And he, he knows which way is up and down in, in politics. And so he tries to work to set up a situation where he can be elected king, so to speak, or that the voice of the people would appoint him as a king. And he does that. He tries it and he fails. And I have this image of like a of like a political campaign at the end of the day. And there's some people that are really happy and some people that are really miserable because <laughs> one side won. But his side, Amlicide's side, is the side that loses. And yet he has his people anointing him king anyway. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. it's like he goes through this legitimate process. <laughs> yeah. He fails. He's mad. So he's just like, do it anyway. And, and that, that kind of move again is, again, that, that kind of discourse or speech that's totally about doing what you want for, your, for yourself. He's not concerned about the society that he's living in. He's not concerned about the people whose lives are going to be spent in this war. He's really just interested in gaining power for himself. And there, I, and while I think that we, li- I'd like to believe that people like that are a caricature, there probably are actually people like that in the world. I don't think I know very many of yeah. them. Um, but I'm sure that there are some people like that who would do anything they could to get in power and to stay in power, and and whether by legitimate or illegitimate means. And he's one of those people. And I, so I, th- I do think they exist. And and what's the consequence of it? Well, the the problem is is that he he stirs up all these people to be really really angry too. They were sad probably, and they were probably a little bit angry, but they weren't necessarily going to go kill people until he starts, it says specifically that he's riling them up to this kind of violence. And I think that's where you start to really cross the line from using, I mean, you're you're not using a rhetoric of justice at all there. You're clearly just doing something for your own self aggrandizement for your own side. And so that raises some important questions for us about how do we react to other people? What are we trying to do to persuade other people? Are we really thinking about what's best for the good of the whole group? Or are we really only thinking about what's what's best for ourselves and or for our particular side? And I think when we once we start to go down that road, then we're we're in danger of of dividing our communities. And we all know, we all know there are a lot of fault lines 
in our community, in every in every community, but particularly now there are fault lines, political fault lines, so to speak, where if we go down that road and we, and we push each other, it's likely that there's going to be conflict and it's going to turn into uh, having an argument instead of making arguments and appealing to people's reason. And I'm not just saying that we should avoid those because I think that's a problem too. But it's also about engaging along those fault lines in ways that are respectful, in ways that are, that are measured, and in ways that do fairness to the people that you're arguing with. That's David Gore. We're talking to him about the new book, The Voice of the People, Political Rhetoric in the Book of Mormon. David, let's conclude by talking about the heart of your book. In the end, it seems to be saying that the Book of Mormon is asking us to choose between two different types of heart sickness. You say there's the heart sickness that results from this hardening or the kind of heart sickness that results from grief and, and empathy. Yeah, one of my readers really didn't like my use of the word, the phrase heart sickness, and I, I'm kind of inclined to agree with him, but I do use that term because I, I think what is interesting about what the Book of Mormon is telling us is that it really does assume that the heart is a, a locus, not just of emotions, but also of, of compassion, right? So, which, and compassion is an interesting term first before I answer that question about the heart. Compassion is really, it's not just about what we think, but also about what we feel and then also how we enact it in the world. And I think that when we think about the heart in that sense as being about feelings, but also actions and also some kind of effect on other people, it, it does seem to me true that our heart can be corrupted by selfishness. And if we're not careful over time, that can really harden into a cruelty. And in, in not just unkindness, but a genuine cruelty to other people. And on the other hand, I think the, the life that the Book of Mormon calls us to live is a life of, of humility, and it's a life of accepting our faults, as Mosiah says, answering for our sins. Uh, whatever those might be. And answering for them is not easy, but if we try to get ourselves into a place where we're ready to do that, where we're prepared to do that, then our hearts are going to be softer in that sense, and they're going to be more pliable, fleshy, I think, rather than stony, the coldness and the hardness of a stone, you know? And so, to me, the Book of Mormon's really put before us these two realities, and it does it in almost a way that's almost, as I say, a caricature or dramatic in the sense that you can be, you could become so bad that you could do this stuff that happens in whether it's the book of Ether or that you could destroy your entire society and tear everyone apart to the last man standing, right? And then you cut off his head and then you're, that's it. It's one, one guy's left. Well, and that's, that's, that's really, really extreme. Most of us are in the probably somewhere in the middle where we're really trying to get by and we're not really paying that much attention to, to the status of our, the ease with which we're willing to show compassion to other people. But if we, if we did look at that a little bit more, a little bit more closely, then I think we might discover some resources for building stronger communities. And that's really what I think that discourse is about. And it, and it really hinges again on that willingness to show compassion to other people and to do the hard work of having a relationship with other people because they're never easy. Or or do you want to short circuit that and just get what you want all the time? And there's that impulse I all the want time. That. 
Yeah. <laughs> There's always that temptation to, yeah. to go that direction. And it's with great ease that we can often find ourselves in that situation. Uh, so that's the that's the challenge, yeah. And the words that you use are mourning and wakefulness. You say the Book of Mormon is calling us to a political rhetoric and, a, and an ethic of mourning and wakefulness. Yeah, and those, those words are right out of the Book of Mormon. Um, and what I think happens at the end of this civil war, the people realize what they've done to themselves and they look around and that realization is a mournful realization they are they are sorry for all the damage that they've done and they're sorry for uh, the corruption that they allowed to enter into their society and the and the contention that they allowed to enter in and but at the same time that mournfulness awakens them to a sense a new sense of duty a, a new and profounder sense of what they the obligations that they have to each other what they owe each other and what they owe to the the good of the public life right and so that's the key part i think of the heart sickness that heals it's it's not about you know not having a weighty heart or a mournful heart in fact it, it can only come through that it can only come through being sorry for what you've done and being sorry for the ways that you might have used speech to get your, yourself ahead and seeing like when you did that and why it was wrong and then trying to, to undo that, the consequences of that in the world, or at least to not do it again. At the very least, don't do it again. Learn a new way to speak so that you, you can really relate to other people in a way that's genuine and compassionate. And, that, and that's again, and again, Compassion like civility has a, a dark side to it. So I don't I don't want to just use that word in a trivial way. But I think the real weight of What's the of, dark side of compassion? Well, I suppose it's about it's about for one thing, thinking that you know what's good for other people. It can be patronizing. Or, or, yeah, it can be it can patronizing be, yeah. or it can also be, I suppose, a cover for uh, other kinds of actions, I mm. guess. I don't yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But you know, when we think about really, really having a feeling of being with other people and being for other people, that's what we, that's what we need to cultivate. That's what I think the Book of Mormon yeah. invites us to cultivate in the way we speak to each other is how, how prepared am I to be with you and be for you and recognize that what you, what you need might not be what I need, but I, but I still might be able to give you what you need. And, and certainly if we can come together and give each other what we need, then we're doing something that's really profound and meaningful. It might be small, it might seem small on a one-on-one -on -one level, but when we multiply that out across society and across the culture, and we re we're really interested in that, that betterment of, of the whole, because I think that's the thing, right? Are we paying attention to just ourselves and what's good for us, or are we paying attention to what's good for the whole? And it's easy for us also to trick ourselves into thinking that what's good for the whole is really what's good for us. Mm -hmm. And so there's obviously all kinds of ways to go wrong here. Yeah. But Well, the Book of Mormon shows that. I mean, yeah, the, yeah, the ending of the right. book is not, this is a tragedy. This book does not end in success. Yeah, and that's, and that's exactly what I say in the book. I call that the tragic side of politics. Yeah. And the tragic side of politics for me is, is realizing that, first of all, that you never did measure up to your potential. Mm -hmm. It's not just politics. This is in our own personal lives. Mm -hmm. We never did measure up to the true potential that we had, and we, sh we should mourn that. Yeah. We should also mourn the fact that no one else is living up to their potential, and we also have to mourn you know, the genuine failure 
nature and the, the really wanton destructiveness of history and and not just history from the past but right now yeah. the, the 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 ways that history is alive right now in the present doing damage to people yeah. dehumanizing and trivializing their reality dismissing the the nature of their experience so on and so forth and so the, the need for us to become conscious of that is ever apparent it's right in front of us all the time uh, and and yet there there are ways we can speak that sort of color over that so that we don't have to see it or that make it easier for us to dismiss it and and I think that mournful and wakeful approach is saying no be awake to that urge in yourself to want to dismiss these things or trivialize them and instead be ready to mourn with other people and be ready to mourn with them in a way that can build a better community because and and again mourning your own shortcomings but also mourning the the failure of politics to the of the community to realize its own potential as a whole. As you made this argument in this book, was there any practical takeaway? Was there something that changed in you as you did this project about how you speak? Wow, that's a really good question. I, I, I or that yeah. you got called up short. You know, you well, noticed well, something. Well, for like sure, that. I realized that all the time. Yeah. That was obviously a big, big part of the of the book. Is that I I realized that you know it isn't it isn't just me, but our political systems everywhere, whether they be the petty politics of a university department or a, or a university a, a collegiate faculty or something. It can happen in a war. It can, it can happen, happen in, yeah, yeah. Any, at any level. It is, it is happening in those places. And the question is, you know, how do we move in a direction that can elevate that, right? And then really thinking about that. And again, I, I go back to this concept of mourning. I, I think it certainly has served as an invitation for me to be more consciously prepared to mourn. I don't know that I've learned how to do that yet. But I certainly want to try. And mourn in a way that leads to wakefulness, not Precisely, yeah. precisely. That, that wakes me up. That's to, the hard part for me is some things are so discouraging and that can lead to just yeah, turning kind of, off. Yeah, it can. And it can, and it can lead to a sense that, of real despair that, yeah. that, or a hopelessness. Yeah. And that's not what I mean by the tragedy of politics. In fact, I, I think the tragedy of politics or the tragic nature of politics is, is to realize that, that you still have a work to do. You still that's have to why, do that's stuff. Politics is about there's still <laughs> yeah. work to be done. Yeah. And the tragic thing is that your work will never accomplish everything that you hope yeah. it will. And so you gotta, you got to deal with that, but you still have to do it. So this reminds me, you know, one of my favorite Jewish proverbs, right, is that it's, it's not given to you to finish the work, but neither are you free to desist from it. Yeah. So you have, this, you have these things that you must do, hmm. uh, and you have to also do them realizing that you'll never complete them. Yeah. In the, in a, you'll never perfect them in, a, in that sense by complete, and you'll also never finish them in the sense that we're done having to build shared realities because that's part of the nature of being human. That's the predicament we're in, is that this desire, this need to continue to build shared realities and find common ground with other people will always be our fate as human beings. It's always there. That's the predicament of our communities. That's the predicament in the Book of Mormon. And that's the predicament that you explore in the book, The Voice of the People, Political Rhetoric in the Book of Mormon. David, thank you so much for coming and talking to us about this today. Thank you for having me, Blair. It's been a pleasure. And, and we'll let people know as well, David's speaking here at Brigham Young University tomorrow. By the time this episode comes out, that lecture will already be available. You can go to YouTube now. It will be ready for you to watch so you can listen to this interview and you can see David talk more about the book. Uh, in his lecture. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast. Before we go, of course, I want to read a review of the month, and this one comes from someone called D. Sabe. I don't know if I'm saying that right. D-S-A-B-E-Y. Uh, apologies if I'm getting that wrong, but here's what they said. 
I wish I'd known about this show since the first episode. I can't believe I've missed it this long, and now I'm listening every free minute until I catch up. I love the topics and speakers. Thank you. And thank you, D. Sabi, uh, for taking the time to write a review in Apple Podcasts. Other people can leave comments on YouTube where we post episodes. It only takes a minute to rate and review, and it helps people find out about the show. Another way you can help people find out about the show is by talking to people in your family or your friends or uh, in in your ward or at school or, or wherever you encounter people that might be interested in conversations about religion. Nobody told D. Sabi about it. They just found out about it just now, so just think, you, D. Sabi could have been listening all along if if one of you had pulled him aside and said, you got to check this out. So, so uh, help us spread word about the show by reviewing it and also by telling people about it. We'll see you next time on the Maxwell Institute podcast. <laughs>